pretty much for those of you that uh, maybe aren't here regularly or even weren't here last week, we've been spending an extensive amount of time on the book of Acts. Um, and so the last chapter of the book of Acts that we studied was Acts chapter 21. So quiz. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Acts chapter 21. Who remembers? No. Um, but really, Acts chapter 21 kind of led us last week. Um, to look into some other passages of scripture, and we're kind of still there, um, and I kind of have a feeling we might be prolonging this, um, but basically I'll give you a little summary. You can turn to Acts chapter 21 if you'd like to, um, but I'll just give you the rundown of it. Um, Paul is making his way to his final missionary journey to, just didn't know if anybody remembered, Jerusalem. <laughs> He's making his way to his final missionary journey to Jerusalem. But basically what we looked at in Acts chapter 21 very extensively was that there's two specific friends of his that they said, one of them, Agabus, specifically said that the Holy Spirit had spoken to him. But basically what he did is he received warnings that he should not go to Jerusalem because his life would be threatened there. And what we find is although his friends were pleading with him and basically begging him, don't go. And they even did an illustration with his belt. They had him take off his belt. And they said pretty much the, the man whose belt that this belongs to, that he is going to be bound and beaten and possibly die there. But basically what we find is that with all of their pleadings, Paul has such a resolute heart. He has a resolve. And Paul's response in verse 13 is, I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I love more than anything, and I just want to highlight this before we go into the rest of the message. He doesn't say, I'm ready to die for the sake of Christianity. He's, he's not necessarily campaigning a cause, a crusade, an organization, um, you know, something that can be identified. It was a person. It was a literal man. He said, for the Lord Jesus Christ. That was actually what was causing his heart to be prepared, not only to be bound but possibly to face death. And if, for those of you that have kind of traveled through the book of Acts with us, you'll know that he actually has already experienced quite a great measure of persecution, physical beatings, I mean, the difficulty that this man underwent. So this wasn't something that was naive or blind in his commitment to say that he was willing. He was doing it fully understanding the cost, but also the pain that goes with it. So this was his declaration. Basically, he could not be moved. And what we began to really discuss when we were, when we were looking into Acts chapter 21 is, number one, the mystery of Paul, really. The mystery of a man named Paul, who basically is willing to give his life for the gospel and the quality of this man's life. And what we did is we actually went through multiple, I'm not going to take time today, but we went through multiple scriptures that really highlighted, outlined, and emphasized really the conviction and the core of who this man is, that he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and be bound and possibly die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And most of you are probably extremely, extremely familiar with one of the most famous passages of scripture um, related to Paul, which is Philippians 3, ver uh, uh, verse 8. And actually, you can turn there, because we're going to kind of go back and forth from Philippians today. Um, but this is actually, we spent quite a bit of time last week um, going through in detail Philippians 3, because basically, in Philippians, Paul lays out that if he had anything to boast in, if he had anything to be proud of in security in this life, 
He was the man that could do it. We went through his bloodline, the lineage that he came from, as far as being of Jewish descent on both sides, that there was no Gentile intermarrying. We went through his education, how he was trained under the most astute doctors in the law. I mean, we went through every dimension of this man's life that basically if he was going to boast in who he was or in his own ability, that he was the person that could do that. But instead what he declared was that he made no boast. That he had no confidence in and of himself. And what we find over and over, he actually professes in verse 8, it says, Yet, indeed, I count all things as loss. What he was saying was, I'm even counting my family line. I'm not taking pride in that. I'm not taking my education and boasting in that. I'm not taking all of my qualifications according to Jewish law. All of these things, instead he's saying, I'm counting them all as loss. And in some translations, it's called rubbish. It's all rubbish. In comparison, and what he was going after was the surpassing worth of the excellency of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So what we find here is Paul was setting this truly as the pinnacle and the greatest ambition and drive of his life was the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Above all else, that's what he was going after. Above every decision that Paul made, The choices that he made was derived from seeking after the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is truly profound. If that was our driving factor in every decision and choice that we made in life. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. There's another passage of scripture that we took time to look at. um, Which was 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 7 which you don't need to turn there. I'll actually just read it for you. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but a moment, but a moment, is working for us far more exceedingly an eternal weight of glory. Basically, over and over and over again throughout Paul's life, what we see is this contrast of eternity versus the moment. That he had such an understanding of eternity versus this present age, which is fleeting. Over and over, what we can see from Paul's life is he truly was not a citizen of this earth. When you look all through the book of Acts, the extraordinary influence that came through Paul's life ultimately was because this age and this world had no hold on him. He had influence over this earthen realm, over this lowly realm, because it had no influence over him. Because in that place, there was no place of temptation or desire or foothold that it had. It had no ruling power over him. That truly, if we, if we talk about that our, our, our citizen is not in this, citizenship is not in this world. <laughs> It's in the age to come. We can find in the life of Paul, truly that place of freedom that he experienced was because he was not bound by the present moment in the present age. I mean, that is truly an extraordinary, because each and every one of us, to some degree, we live in the confines of space and time. We live in the confines of this present moment and, and what will happen tomorrow and next week and, and kind of the, the, the sowing and reaping of this present age. But oftentimes, we don't just live according to it. We're in bondage to it. We truly live with such a place of self-preservation that there's things that we're seeking after that we can't with honest, true conviction say that it's the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. 
that above all else, everything else in our life is rubbish. Our reputation, rubbish. Don't care what anybody thinks about me. Our uh, public opinions, none of it matters. Our image, none of it matters. Our degrees, our, our, our education. Some, I mean, to, I'll be honest with you. When I study the life of Paul, I constantly am just awestruck with the realm even of like monetary value. The hold that really money has upon us in this present age. Truly, how many of our decisions are made based upon monetary decisions? Most of us, and this is then what we moved on to look at last week, is we looked at this understanding, and I'll bring up Mary of Bethany, that Mary of Bethany literally had, she received an inheritance from her, her parents were deceased. She had an inheritance that gave her financial security for her future. Which is what pretty much mostly every American to some degree is seeking and looking after. You know, and I, I, I'm all about it. Like, I, I, I love the fact that the Lord has given us a very generous supporter for our life and our family. I really don't have to give a thought about fundraising or those. That's a blessing, honestly. It's a blessing to have finance. But in the degree that most of our decision making is toward that end. So you find Mary of Bethany who has basically her financial future secure. And what does she do? It's an alabaster box. It's fragrant oil and perfume that was very, very, very costly in the age that she lived. And what she did is she literally broke that thing open and poured it out upon Jesus. So what she had that most of us are, are clamoring and seeking and striving and fighting to acquire and to attain, it has become the great ambition of our life. Mary poured it all out in a moment because she saw the worth of Jesus Christ. So basically the understanding when we were looking at the life of Paul, it really brought us last week to really discuss what it is to waste our life. And what we looked at in great detail, which we're not going to go into great detail today, but I'll overview, is that at the end of our days, every single one of us is going to waste our life on something. Be it good or bad. Be it righteous or unrighteous. Be it noble in the eyes of man or un, you know, disrespected. Whatever it may be, we will waste our lives on something. So, and we actually, I, I read a little bit out of John Piper's book last week and of how he kind of went on this pursuit of trying to figure out what is the meaning of life. Like what, at the end of my days... What, about, what does all of this amount to? And he actually shared this story that I shared last week that his father was an evangelist. And at one time, his, he would said he could hear his father like night after night after night sharing stories of salvation. Of, you know, teenagers that said the sinner's prayer and they were in a car wreck that night. You know, very emotional, dramatic stories of salvation. And what he said is the thing that struck him the most and impacted him the most as a child and really affected him into his adult years was this one story of an elderly gentleman that had always resisted the gospel, had always resisted Jesus, just had a hard heart, just was not open. But he had come into the father's meeting one night, and it was late at night, and at the end of the meeting, he ended up saying the sinner's prayer with him. He ended up saying the sinner's prayer, asking Jesus into his heart. And then there was just a flood of tears. And they thought that the tears were tears of joy for experiencing salvation. And he said, but instead of it being tears of joy, he said the man was actually weeping over and over and just saying, I've wasted it all. I've wasted it all. It's all wasted. 
And see, that's the thing is that for each one of us at the end of our lives, we look back, and to be honest, some people are pursuing and they've made their life ambition to climb the corporate ladder. That's what they want. If they could just, their eyes are on the corporate ladder. Like if I could climb it, if I could attain to being, somehow when they get there, everything's going to be different. And so you can actually identify that. But there's some of us that really our life's ambition and our pursuits actually can't even be identified with human eyes. I mean, you know it from talk. Do you ever get into the kind of conversations with certain people that literally every single time you meet them, they have something negative to say about somebody else? I mean, honestly, although it's not career or things like that, they've made it their life ambition to discredit others to lift themselves up. They'll constantly live tearing down the accomplishments, the, the, the character traits of other people, and somehow it makes them feel more righteous, more, more holy, more accomplished, more... I mean, that's, that's nothing that can be measured outwardly, but you have to understand at the end of their life, the decisions that they've made, choices in friendship, choices in career, those kind of things have been derived from a place of trying to get above and advance beyond, regardless of who they have to step on in the process. There's other people that their entire life is wrapped up in a house. It, they're working for the house. They're living for the house. They're, I mean, their, their house is the, the, the climax. And to be honest, I never understood it. I can remember as a kid thinking, why do people say it's the American dream? Like, I, I, you know, I, I just would be like, I just don't get it. But now being an adult and having a kid and kind of, you know, min mingling with moms and realizing, I mean, honestly, okay, so I own a house, right? I'm not opposed to owning homes. I own one. But there is an element. When we first moved into our house, I said to my husband, I'm like, you could spend every night of the week at Home Depot. Like, you could just, there's endless things to do to your home. You know, it's just, I mean, it just goes on. Like, once every room is painted and once every room is decorated, oh, now I think I would like to. You know, it's, there's the endless home project. I mean, and you can see it. Anybody turn on TLC or I don't know any other station on TV, but... I know TLC has lots of home shows. <laughs> I, I mean, you find me, if you go through the thing, it's just like home improvement, flip your house, buy a house in this, you know, this country. This, everything is about the, the kind of the building of our, our house and our structure and where we live. I mean, for other people, it's all fashion and image. It's all what we other people, their car. I mean, there's endless, endless, endless. And honestly, and this is why, why I kind of want to take it off of outward things, there's some people that will live their entire life living under the pain, the fear, the regret of not having a parent's approval. And really, the seeking of degrees, jobs, homes is with that angst and that cry in their spirit of hoping and wishing for the praise and the approval of one person. That's a profound thing to spend your entire life like fixated upon. But there is, in every single one of us, whether it's easy to identify whether it's easy to articulate, whether you could even, right now, some of you, if you were going to write in your journal, what is the driving force? What is the driving factor of my entire life? When I make decisions, what are they based upon? I mean, honestly, in, it, it, I think in sincerity, all of us could say that we desire it to be Jesus. That's our desire. But are we to that place where our heart is so wholehearted that that is the determining factor for everything that we do, everything that we say, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. I mean, all of those things, that that's what we weigh before the eyes of God. So pretty much last week what we were talking about is a wasted life. And that ultimately, 
All of life is wasted. It's just depending on what we waste it upon. And what we find biblically is Mary of Bethany, she wasted her life's inheritance at Jesus' feet. She poured it all out. And that, in the eyes of man, looks utterly foolish. And it was disrespected. She was actually scorned. But in the eyes of Jesus, he actually praised her. He vindicated her. He, he stood on her behalf. Something that the, the world despised, Jesus stood in defense of. That is powerful. But then we see, we looked actually at the opposite, actually, what is a wasted life, and actually who Jesus rebuked. And we looked at the story in Matthew 25, um, verse 14 through 30. Most of you know this parable. It's actually a parable, and it, and it says that the master comes, and that there's three individuals, and that he gives five talents to one, uh, two talents to the second, and one talent to the last. And really, it's a parable of how we sow our lives. That each one of us has been entrusted, put aside talent, put aside your ability to write, your ability to create, your ability to design, your ability to problem solve, put aside all of our talents. We've all been given the gift of time, really. It's a gift that every single, no matter how talented or untalented you may be, <laughs> you have the gift of time. And basically, this parable is really speaking of the talents, the things that the Lord entrusts to us. What do we do with them? So you have the gentleman that has the five talents, and basically when the master comes back, he had multiplied it. He had invested it. He, those five talents now actually were ten talents. And then you have the guy with the two talents. His two talents had become four talents. Those were multiplied. And the guy with the one talent, when the master asked him, the guy with the one talent basically says, I know you're a hard taskmaster. I know that you reap where you have not sown. And so I buried it because I was so scared of losing it. So I got one. I got the one. So his talent was not multiplied. It was not increased. There was nothing done with it. And the crazy thing is the master looks and he says, take the talent from the one. Take and give to he that has. And the crazy thing about this parable is really when you read like the, the I've, I've heard many scholars and read many uh, theologians that debate it. I mean, the craziness when you just take, if you don't look at the whole talent, when you just take the end where he basically has, says, to he that has, more will be given. And to he that does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. I mean, that is such a harsh, confusing, confusing statement when you interpret it through the lens of a compassionate, loving God. What do you mean he that doesn't have what he has is going to... But it's through this understanding of being stewards and rightly stewarding what the Lord entrusts to us. And the place of stewarding it and understanding it's a gift from the Lord. So in, instead of just holding it or even squandering it and wasting it, using it to the maximum potential. And like I said, let's just, all of you guys have gifts, talents, incredible abilities. But if we just even bring it, bring it, bring it, bring it down to the gift of time of not squandering what the Lord has given to us, but using it to its maximum ability. So last week we kind of took this uh, period of time of looking at kind of wasted and what it means to waste things and what it is even if it looks wasted, but the Lord vindicates it. Uh, versus where in Matthew 25, he did not, like the master was not vindicating, he was actually standing in judgment of, which is powerful. Uh, but it really should cause the fear of the Lord in us that we don't want to be those that squander or waste our life, our destiny, and our potential. But before him, we want it to multiply and increase to the fullness of what he's intended and purposed. Um, but the question then kind of became, okay, so if we don't want to waste our life, 
what does it look like at the end of our life to say that it's not wasted? I mean, what is a life that we won't regret? I mean, honestly, there's people in the world that are doing tremendous acts of philanthropy. Sorry. There's people that are out helping masses and masses and masses and masses of people. The question becomes, what is it, and, and you can't, it's not in the eyes of man. It's not that one person we can judge and deem that their life wasn't wasted because they helped multitudes. And the next individual, it seemed as though they didn't help anybody, but they were self-absorbed. And ultimately, at the end of the days, and this is what we looked at in Corinthians, is where it speaks of that those that build will build with wood, hay, stubble, precious stones, silver, and gold. And that when his fire comes, the refiner's fire, it is only that which endures the fire. It's only that that actually can stand the refiner's fire that has been built upon righteousness and truth. And it's that place that no one ever could judge the outward acts of your life and stand in that place to judge. It is only before the eyes of God. But we looked at at through scripture was the understanding of a life that's not wasted is more than outward positions or outward postures. It's the posture of our heart. It's that place of seeking, no matter what you're doing in your outward vocation, no matter what you have to maybe fill 8 to 12 hours a day as far as in this present life, maybe a job that you may fulfill, but where he spoke and he said, love the Lord your God God, with all your heart. He said this is the greatest commandment. He didn't say this is the greatest suggestion. He didn't say this is the greatest option. This is the greatest choice. This is the greatest, you know, thing that you could... He said, this is the greatest command. When the disciples came saying, what is the greatest of all the commandments? Love the Lord your God. And if we get that, we get it all. If we love him with all of our being, everything else is affected by that. Every every other dimension of our life. So basically, we, we looked at that place of this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But really, where we finished was... Discussing how most people feel as though when the Lord commands us to love him with all of our lives, if it's truly basically a life that is worth, like if he says, this is a life that's not wasted. It's that you give me glory and honor in everything that I receive the glory that's due my name. What, what we began to talk about is that place that most people actually feel like somehow that's not loving. That God doesn't give us what we deserve, or the focus isn't necessarily upon our satisfaction or our own happiness or the pursuit of our life, that somehow it's an unloving God. And I actually read this explanation, and this is where we left off and where we're actually picking up. I read this explanation that John Piper gives, and it says, For many people, this is not, uh, this is not obviously an act of love. They do not feel loved when they are told that God created them for His glory. They feel used... This is understandable given the way that love has been almost completely distorted in our world. For most people, to be loved is to be made much of. Almost everything in our Western culture serves this distortion of love. We are taught in a thousand ways that love means increasing someone's self-esteem. Love is helping someone feel good about themselves. Love is giving someone a mirror and helping them like what they see in the mirror. This is not what the Bible means by by, by the love of God. Love is doing what is best for someone. Let's just, for a moment, just take, I want to just repeat that because that's the defining factor of love. Love is doing what is best for someone. But making self the object of our highest affections is not best for us. 
It is, in fact, a lethal distraction. We were made to see and savor God, and savoring Him to be supremely satisfied. I'm going to read this one more time, because really this kind of lays the foundation for what we're discussing today. Um, love is not doing what is best, uh, I'm sorry, love is doing what is best for someone, but, but making self the object of our highest affections is not best for us. It is, in fact, a lethal distraction. We were made to see and savor God, and, and savoring Him to be su- supremely satisfied. Basically, what I want to talk about today is the pursuit of the knowledge of God. That that is our highest aim and our highest goal. When I was reflecting on the life of Paul, and even after uh, last week's message, I was thinking about this place of to see God and to savor God. We're created for God's glory. Well, at the, at the end of the day, we can have very lofty ideas and even lofty slogans. I'm created for God's glory. I'm created for God's glory. A life that's not wasted is a life that's created for God's glory. You know, we can kind of think it all up high in the clouds as far as theories. But what does it look like to translate that into everyday life? What does that play out as? How does that work out? But the crazy thing is, we if you look at the life of Paul, the extraordinary man of faith, the extraordinary man of boldness, the extraordinary man of influence, if you look at even his utter abandonment to Jesus Christ when he said, I'm not willing, I'm willing not only to be bound, but to die for the name of Jesus Christ. Really what should strike our hearts is that we can live like Paul lived if we see what Paul saw. Paul saw something. Paul saw something that drove him to have a great life ambition of nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, Paul saw something. There was something his spiritual eyes beheld and that he understood that changed everything for Paul. It was no longer about Paul. Somehow he got to the place where it was not about him seeking his own life. He somehow lost his life completely in the man Christ Jesus. And ultimately for each and every single one of us, If we can come to the place where we saw, where we see what Paul saw at that time, what had captured his heart, what had changed his emotional DNA, what had changed his perspective about everything, what influenced his life and choices, if we can see that, it will actually cause us and drive us to live the extraordinary lives in this present age like Paul lived in in the New Testament. That instead of us necessarily kind of praying and hoping and wishing, it's that place of walking out the extreme devotion that Paul knew. I'm actually going to read to you guys, um, by, how many of you guys are familiar with A.W. Tozer? Out of the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I actually love what he says. It says, Tozer taught that, um, that what we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Your perceptions, your views, not so much when we're all in here and there's awesome pumping worship music and we're in that moment, we're excited to be alive and to worship the Lord, but kind of in the quiet, quiet, quiet recesses of our hearts, in the quiet moments of our hearts, in the place of solitude, honestly, even on our hardest days. I mean, some people honestly believe God's out to get them. God's out to teach you a lesson. God's out to, you know, somehow, 
drive you to obedience. You know, like, there's a perception that we have about God. Like, whether you articulate it to me or to anybody else, there are driving perspectives that you have in images, whether God's just out to discipline you. I mean, all of those kind of, I, I mean, some of us, though, have very distorted perceptions of God, but they even may be good, that, that God's like a big Santa Claus, and whatever we ask him for, he's just going to give, you know, that it's almost like it's our wish list, and we can constantly bring it before him. I mean, all of those things, but what Tozer said is that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. So just put aside every, all of you, in the eyes of man, there's certain words that you feel come to mind. When, when, when a person says your name, you feel as though there's certain images that come to mind. Some of you think, well, when somebody says my name, people think I'm timid. Well, when somebody thinks that says my name, people think I, I'm very smart. You know, you, all of you, if you just take a minute, you, you know that there, you feel as though there's a certain image that people hold of you. All of those things aside and what we all value and esteem, the most important thing about you as an individual is what you think about God. The most revealing thing about the church is found in her ideas of Jesus. The most revealing thing, her most significant message is what she has to say about him or leaves unsaid about him. A hundred lesser evils are caused by this one great lack of the knowledge of God. It's the root problem. I mean, if we look at the Western church, you know, I mean, it's so easy for all of us to go, the Western church, you know, it's so weak and void of power. You know, all of those things. Put everything else aside. Every other plague, every other dysfunction, every other inability, everything that we're not doing right could do better. At the very, very root of it, it's a lack of the knowledge of God. It's the lack of clear understanding and a clear perspective of who he is. I love actually what Richard Foster says, and I'm going to bring it basically because I want us to um, have time for ministry today. I'm going to speed through this, but I want to move into the next, next segment of seeking the knowledge of God above all else. Um, John chapter 17. How many of you guys are familiar with John 17? This is where it's the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and he declares that this is eternal life to know him. This is eternal life, is to know him. He's speaking about knowing God. This is what Jesus is speaking. That this is eternal life. How many of you in this room are familiar with John 3.16? I mean, we can all quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Who wants to, anybody want to quote it? I mean, it's, it's like the most renowned. Huh? <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that we would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.15, the verse actually just before that, is that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Most of the times we take this passage of scripture and we're looking at it all in the sense of if we receive Jesus in our heart, we get eternal life. But what you need to understand is the word perishing here that we would not perish, and even the word eternal life, even that understanding of eternal life, eternity actually means there's no beginning and there's no end. So what that means for you as an individual is if you don't think eternal life, okay, when I drop dead, I get eternal life. 
because they believed in Jesus. Eternal life in this understanding, it is not quantitated as far as the, sorry, it's not qual, go ahead, somebody. <laughs> it's quantitated, there you go. It, it's the quality of life. It's the living in fellowship and communion with him, unbroken fellowship with him for all of our days. And what you have to understand is it does not begin the day that you die. The promise of everlasting life, eternal life, is that you would have that promise today. That you would experience that life and joy and peace. That you would experience that righteousness and the fullness of God today. The promise that you would not perish doesn't even necessarily mean that the day that you die, the day that's on your tombstone, that that day that you're not going to perish in the ground, it's a promise of that day-to-day living, that you would not live as one that is perishing, one that is dead on the inside, one that is struggling just to get by, one that can't find peace, one that can't find joy, one that's always living under the oppressor, oppressor in a sense that you're perishing. You're suffering. It's hard. I'm just trying to get through today. That is not the life that has been promised, and that is not the door that's been opened through Jesus Christ. It's not the hope of a better by and by in eternity when you die. The promise is that in this day-to-day life, that here in September of 2012, that you would not be perishing. That you would not be perishing in depression, that you would not be perishing in unforgiveness, that you would not be perishing in bitterness, that you would not be perishing in being self-absorbed, just like we just read like Piper said. That is the most destructive way that we can live. It's legal to live unto self. Jesus said it so clearly. He said that when we sow to the flesh, it's corruption, we reap death. But when we sow to the Spirit, it's eternal life. That when we're living unto, unto self, the ultimate, the ultimate extreme and where it's leading unto is death. It leads to death emotionally. It leads to death spiritually. It leads to death mentally. And that is why the greatest gift that Jesus gave to us is the understanding you're created for the glory of God. You are created for something outside your limited little confines of your opinions and your views and your wants and all your judgments of everybody else. You're created for something else way beyond your own perspectives even. Do you realize how warped the human perspective is? I mean, honestly. I mean, I hope they never hear it, but I have little nieces. (laughs) I always think whenever it's recording, oh boy. So many people email, oh, listening to them, I'm thinking, oh man. (laughs) I have little nieces. You know, they're like 8, 9, 10, like all around that age. And honestly, sometimes like when they're sharing with me their opinions and, oh, that girl, the way she dresses and, oh, her hair and, oh, she's so, I literally sit there kind of going, who said you look any better? Like, I mean, I honestly think it's crazy. But adults do it too, in our own way, in our own way, in our own way, come on folk, you adults, you all do it. It may not be about hair and makeup and shoes, because you're not that vain, but other issues in life. Honestly, I said, you know, like my little niece, she's the cutest thing on the planet, she'll like, give her opinion about something in my house. And I literally just go, like, literally go, "Mm, mm, don't bite my tongue right now. (laughs) She gives her opinion, and I just kind of go, oh, you think so? Oh, okay, thanks. I'll I'll make a mental note of that. (laughs) Keep that in mind for next time I'm decorating. 
know what? That is your life. That is your choice. And you define what is beautiful. You know, whatever, whatever that may be. But for the next person that makes a life decision, you know, they make a life choice. How, how do you love that when people, when you hear friends giving even their opinions about somebody's mate? Oh, I can't believe they married so-and-so. Are you serious right now? Are you really saying that right now? Like, obviously, they saw something that you did not. And so, <laughs> and I, I just, the endless ways that we literally sit in judgment and view of other people. Where the fact of the matter, if we could just somehow just break out of the box of, like, thinking that somehow we're the God of the universe, and we get a say on what everybody should and shouldn't do, and what's right and isn't right, and how it should have been and could have been, and let me tell you how to do it different. I mean, if we could break out of that and get a glimpse of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If we could get a glimpse of something greater and bigger than ourselves. I mean, really, I have a three-year-old. I understand what it is to have an individual that the pinnacle of all of life is absorbed in, in one person. Like, he just believes that everything should be catered to him, how he wants, when he... I mean, honestly, it'll be nap time. And he honestly, sometimes Daryl will be getting ready to go out the door. I want both of you to lay with me. What? Like, are you for real? Like, life does not stop. And the whole world does not just nap right now because you want a mommy and a daddy to lay next to you. But, I mean, that's the pinnacle of a three-year-old. Everything revolves around them. But the issue is, as adults, some of us haven't moved beyond that. And some of us are desperately needing to move beyond that. And that's what we find in the life of Paul. We find a man that was not wrapped up in his own comfort. He literally said, whether I abase or whether I abound, I am content. That's crazy. I mean, how many of you, I mean, if your bank account is overdraft, it, the day has gone to hell. The day has just gone to hell. My bank account is over. I mean, we live in such an emotional whirlwind of who, who praised us, who didn't praise us. They noticed me. They didn't notice me. They criticized me. They, I mean, we live in such a world that is so surrounded about by you and me and how we live and what I say and what you view. It is so earthly. It is so lonely. It is so depressing, really. That's the word I want to use. <laughs> I was trying to think of my next word, but what is it? It's, that's depressing. And the fact of the matter is we were created for so much more. And it's only in the place that we get a revelation of God that I'm going to be honest with you, that is the place you are going to find freedom. That's the place you're going to find joy. That's where, honestly, the more, the more kind of tied up we get in minute areas of life, just minute things that kind of ruffle your feathers, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of you... Just the minute things in life, they get under your skin, they bother you, they irritate you, it makes your whole day sour. Those right there are a huge indication of how self-absorbed we are. The more that we are able to find peace and joy, like Paul, whether I abase or whether I abound. I mean, honestly, the guy was beaten. I mean, what the man went through. But yet, he, said, he, he literally lived in such a place, I don't know how, but it's in the Bible, so it's true, that he found joy in the midst of it. But you know why it was? Because he was living for something much greater than himself. It wasn't about his entitlement theory, that I'm entitled to my hour of leisure this week. 
I'm entitled to get in some good pleasure, a movie, uh, a stroll to the gym, whatever it is. In our American society, somehow we're entitled to certain things, right? We're entitled. <laughs> but Paul, he lived as though he, there was nothing that he was entitled to. He lived from a place, it was sheer abandonment, but the emphasis is it's because he saw something much greater. The excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The excellency. What that means, that word excellency literally means superior. It is superior and above all else. And that's the place that our emotions, even our needs, because really honestly, I'm so sorry that this is not a really good self-help talk today, but our needs are just so vain and so minuscule and so unnecessary. I mean, really, really. I mean, you have some basic rights in the world. I mean, some very, very basic ones. But beyond that, it's all bonuses. <laughs> I mean, we're not entitled to it. <laughs> but really in that place, it, it, that Paul, that none of those things that he was entitled to, that he wasn't entitled to get a big paycheck, that he wasn't entitled to recognition, that he was doing it all ultimately for the supremacy. For, for the excellency. It was such a supreme joy, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So let me just get back, John 3.16. So this place and this understanding that what Jesus has opened the door to is that you would experience eternal and everlasting life today. That place of life today, that today you would not be perishing. When you wake up tomorrow, that it would not be another in the cycle of life, a Monday that you just have to get through your work week. That place that you're not perishing as you drive to work, as you drive to school, but yet you are experiencing eternal life in that place. Um, I just actually want to close out with this point here. But the question ultimately becomes, how do we know God? How do we come to know God? Um, this quote by Richard Foster says, the, the curse of this postmodern world is distraction." The way of escape is through regularly practicing silence and solitude. Okay, I understand that's a very broad statement, and I just said, how do we know God? And then I gave this, and everybody's going, okay, silence and solitude. But honestly, I think a vast, vast majority of culture and society, and us as people, that the amount of overload that we have with information and technology and information and, and entertainment and social and all of those things where he says that, that the curse of the modern age is distraction. I think oftentimes it's just the removal of a couple distractions. He, I love the fact that he says silence and solitude. You know why I love that? Is the fact, if you honestly, honestly, just shut it all off. Shut the iPhone off, shut the iPad off, shut off all, I mean, shut it off. And he says regularly, if you would just take, po me, all of us, if we would take pockets of time and in that place of silence and solitude, just with the word of God, straight up Bible, straight up Bible, just sit and just even meditate on a passage of scripture. I guarantee you that there would no longer be a mystery of how to know God in that place of quieting our hearts, that it's not, he's not a I love in Deuteronomy. It literally says, the word is not far from you. It is near. It is present. It dwells with... He is near. It's just most of the time we don't, don't actually take the time to hear and listen and to know him. 
Um, I'm just going to read you just a few passages of scripture, this understanding that the way that we know God is through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed. This is amazing. The word of God is just... God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the worlds. This is God speaking here. Who being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Jesus is, if you're wondering how we come to know God, Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. That is what Jesus is. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. That's powerful. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. It is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus that we, know, that we come to know God. Colossians 2.9, 2, for in him, speaking of Jesus, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then John 14.9, Jesus said to him, he who has seen me has seen the Father. That to see Jesus, we see the Father. I really want us, I, we definitely, for time's sake today, can't go any further, but I really want us to take time and attention over the next few weeks of understanding what it is to live in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. I think even this um, quote that I have read to you guys by A.W. Tozer, that ultimately it is that, that a, a thousand lesser evils could be eradicated if, if the, a true perspective of the knowledge of God, of who God is. And the most remarkable thing is, and I don't know how to reconcile this in my heart, I believe that God can show himself to anybody. I believe that he can reveal himself to anybody, and I do believe that he can use whatever means is necessary to do that. But what we actually find through these passages of scripture is the written word declares that it's through Jesus Christ that we come to know God. So kind of the theory that all ways lead to God. That somehow every way is going to lead you there. But the word of God is very, very clear that it's through Jesus Christ. That it's through Jesus Christ that we come to know God. So we actually, we can't even begin to discuss or venture to pursue the knowledge of God without looking at the man of Jesus Christ. Without looking at his life, without examining the man of Jesus Christ, without giving full attention to saying, who is this man Jesus? But it's through Jesus that we have eternal life and that we have the hope that we will not be perishing in this age. I want us just to stand to our feet as we close out in prayer. God, even as we've taken time today, Lord, this understanding that the knowledge of God and the understanding of who God is only comes through Jesus Christ. 
God, we ask, Lord, that even in a culture, Lord, that we are so comfortable with the name of God, and God can be uttered from not only pulpits, but even politicians, but Jesus Christ, who is who becomes the, the divisive factor and the divisive name, Lord, that, that people cannot agree upon. Lord, in this place, God, I ask, Lord, the, the, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you would magnify Jesus as who he is, that he is the way to God, that there is no other way to God but through Jesus. God, I ask, Lord, even today, God, that we would be those that live our pursuit and the, and the knowledge and, and the desire, Lord, to truly comprehend the excellency of Jesus Christ. God, right now, Lord, I, I speak over us as a community, Father. Lord, I declare over us as a people, God, Jeremiah 9, God, that we will not boast. Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man glory in his strength. Lord, let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let he that glories glory in this, that he knows and that he understands my ways. God, we say that we count all things as rubbish, all things as loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. God, we ask, Lord, even right now, God, that that would become, Lord, the, the supreme issue. Lord, that that would become the, the pinnacle of our lives, is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So we ask, Lord, would you open our eyes to see you rightly? God, we ask, Lord, even now, God, would you deliver us, God, from self? God, would you deliver us from being those that are self, self-absorbed, God, with our own desires, our own needs, and God, even an entitlement mentality of what we are entitled to as Americans. God, we say we want to value you above all else. God, we want to pursue the knowledge of God above all else. God, we ask, Lord, right now, would you align our hearts? God, every pursuit and every desire. God, every longing and every priority. God, everything that drives us, God, in, in this present age. God, we ask. God, we say, God, come invade our space. God, come and invade our emotions. God, come and invade even our our perspectives and our understanding. God, we say be magnified. Glorify your name. 